Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Portfolio Manager Steve Buller joins us today. For Canadian investors, Steve manages Fidelity Global Real Estate Fund. U.S. CPI data for the month of July has come in at 8.5%. We now wonder if this downward pressure on CPI indicates a more dovish call from the Federal Reserve in September. And today with Steve, we look at how this could impact commercial real estate and the REIT market globally. Additionally today, Steve shares the real estate trends he is following with host Pamela Ritchie and touches on his fund's positioning and investment strategy. This podcast was recorded on August 10th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Great to see you, Steve. How are you? Yes. Good morning, Pamela. I'm good. Great to have some time to chat with you today. Okay, so let's go straight to that print. It was uh, not as bad as expected. Um, We still have high inflation. There's There's no question there. I guess, ultimately, how do you look at a print like this? Do you sort of agree with the reaction from equities, for instance? Yeah, I think it's, you know, the stock market often is about the expectation game. And since it was slightly lower than expectations, there's a little bit of excitement today. It's still a very high number. And in a weird way, that's actually good for commercial real estate. As Ah. we've seen over long periods of time, that high inflation and, you know, real estate is, is, is sort of an inflation hedge. And we've seen that in the statistics. Fascinating. Yeah, no, it's really, we're talking a lot about commercial real estate, ultimately. Um, where ultimately, does, do you think this might put us in the discussion of where rate hikes go from here? I mean, this this is the question, isn't it? This is sort of the presage of what Jerome Powell will have to work with in terms of data prints um, on the way to a September meeting. How many basis points do they move up or not? I mean, it's hard for you to know, but I'm just sort of curious how important this data is in that story. Yeah, in some respects, short-term interest rates are not that important to real estate. It's for what's going on the longer end of the curve because real estate is a long-term asset and is primarily financed with long-term debt. So right. we actually care more what's going in 10-year JGBs, 10-year bunds, or in, in 10-year U.S. Treasuries more than actually in the short end of the curve. How has the dollar affected sort of some of those overall long-term discussions of how of how other assets are performed around the world? The dollar's been quite a story for months now. Yeah, the U.S. dollar obviously has been very strong. I mean, this is a global real estate fund where approximately a little less than 70%, if you take what's going on uh, with the U.S. and the Hong Kong dollar, assuming the peg stance is in U.S. dollars. So the other side of it has actually whether it's the euro, whether it's the sterling or the yen or the Aussie dollar, that depreciation has somewhat hurt the returns on the fund. Now, I don't make huge country bets versus the benchmark. So then I don't make huge foreign currency bets versus the benchmark. Obviously, on an absolute return basis, it does matter. But on a relative 
it really doesn't. Yeah, okay, it's fascinating. So, so let's take a look at, I'm sort of curious about the various elements of, of the commercial market. There, there are some areas where there obviously has been lots of movement, but there are other areas where there just haven't been that many sales. So we were speaking to someone else in another context about how there, there is often a bit of a lag in the commercial area if you just haven't actually had transactions happen. Yeah, with kind of the distortions that we did see in the capital markets, first on the debt side and then on the equity side, what is very common is then a pause occurs where you see a widening of the bid-ask spread between what people are willing to sell a building, what people are want to buy a building, and also what their cost of capital is, especially if they're using quite a bit of debt or on the gearing side, people have to ascertain, well, how much debt can I get? What will that cost? And to some respects, that flows into what people's ability to pay or will pay for a building or portfolio buildings. So there's a pause. We've actually, in the last couple of days, talked to a lot of commercial real estate brokers, and they're seeing it too in their business, anywhere down between 10 and 20% transactions worldwide in the month of July. And I think that will start to sort itself out after a while when the sellers adjust to perhaps a new price and buyers then also know what they're willing to pay. I mean, on average, and there's no average building in the world, but an average building in the world so far this year is down between zero and 5% in terms of value, depending where it's located, depending what, what it is. But that's a rough estimate that we think is, has occurred in the market, the private real estate market. The private real estate market. So tell us a bit about the various sectors within commercial. We've spoken about this before. Has, has anything significantly changed? in terms of the positioning within the fund, looking at either industrial, commercial, or different parts of commercial? Yeah, since we last talked in this year, and I hate to be boring, but the, the general emphasis on positioning actually hasn't changed that much. That's I, not boring, that's sticking with the strategy. That is, and especially with real estate being a long-term asset class. I have what I'll call a balanced approach, that is between risk on and risk off, between value and growth, between the reopening trade and what, uh, lack of a better term, the work from home. And I'm kind of in the middle, like some of the, the sectors that are on the reopening are um, the gaming sector, the assisted living sector, the retail sector, where earlier in, or late last year and earlier this year, we did increase our exposure to that on kind of the reopening trade. But at the same time, we also still have exposure to the long-term consistent growers whether it's data centers, whether it's logistics facilities, whether it's the towers, stocks, things like that. So this is this balance. And we see it in the market where some days, and it's also in the equity markets, but also in the listed global property securities markets, that one group of them will trade very well. The next day it will reverse. So we're happy right now with kind of this balanced approach. Very interesting. Okay. So the all fascinating office discussion. Where are you there? <laughs> what are your thoughts? Actually, I think I know where you are in terms of positioning there, but what do you think? I, I am underweight office, especially in North America and the UK, where I think the work from home or now I got to correct myself. It's now the RTO return to office phenomena. And we see this in the statistics. It has it is just static as can be somewhere in the mid to high 40s percent that people are returning to the office. Now, that's measured even over a week. I'm in the office today and I'm finding Tuesdays and Wednesdays the office is quite full because there's this phenomenon that we see is that that's when people know that they can do in-person meetings, whether internally or externally, that people will be there to actually conduct them. What about Thursday? Um, 
Thursday, yes, that's blending, and we'll see as we get into the autumn time of year when where it's more traditional back to work. I think you will see this Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, where people know that they can get people live, people are expected to be in, in the office, but companies that are offering flexibility, the Mondays and the Fridays, obviously are the first two days that people are going to beg for that flexibility. Outside of North America, we do own office because in an Asian context, people still are going to the office for work. Very high utilizations rate, for example, in Japan, Hong Kong, and Singapore. One, because their dwelling sizes are much smaller, so work from home doesn't do that well. And secondly, some of it's cultural, where people expect that to happen. So we do have exposure to office, but less so within the North American kind of UK geographies. One of the other pieces of that story is that people want to be in cities to be, mm -hmm. you know, with with people, but maybe working from home within the city, that sort of side of thing. So what does that mean for rentals? I mean, we saw it actually in the inflation print, the sort of rent equivalent, pretty stubbornly where it is. But what of that dynamic? You, you see that phenomenon worldwide. That in urban areas, as we come out and we hope it's, you know, our post-pandemic, whatever 5.0 it may be, people are want to be in urban areas. They want to have the nightlife. They want to have the restaurants. They want to have the cultural offerings. That doesn't mean that they want to go to the office every day. And that is very much pronounced, whether it's in New York City, whether that's in London, whether that's in Sydney whether that's in Toronto. That phenomena is live and well. So we do see apartment rental rates in many of these markets, actually, given the supply demand dynamic, up quite a bit. And in some respects, the only thing limiting in some markets is whether if there's some rent control. So that's the only thing that is, in some respects, is limiting the ability. If you're in a true market-based rental, things like we see in some cities, you're seeing 15% year-over-year type rental increases. That's not uncommon. That's amazing. I mean, you just wonder how sustainable that is. How sustainable is that? <laughs> You're the first. Well, well, then, you know, look, incomes have gone up. So that's one element of it. People come uh, are coming out of the pandemic with quite a bit of savings on that. So those two do support that. And then lastly, which is very important, your other option could be to go buy a single family residence or a condo. And where we see mortgage rates around the world going up, that option has also become more expensive. And we've seen that in um, many apartment statistics, starting here in the U.S. and also in Europe, the, the percentage of people that are leaving an apartment to go purchase a resident has actually been falling over the, the last couple of months. In some respects, it's at, at very low levels versus the last couple of years. So that means people have the income, they need a place to stay, and they will stay in their apartment because they're very reluctant to go pay the mortgage rates and or the prices that they see in residential dwellings. I've been fascinated, like everyone, uh, by the sort of travel story this, this summer and the, the leisure opportunities and discussions. Hotels seem to really be having a tough time finding enough people, they're finding people, but enough people to work, um, mm -hmm. a similar story. What does this look like for you going forward, the, the sort of leisure side of things, uh, the growth? Yeah, I, I have moved and had my risk on an overweight position in, in lodging stocks worldwide. And notwithstanding some of the troubles that airports and airlines are having, I don't want to fly to Toronto at the moment because of the well-known trouble. It's getting better, but though, I have to say. It's getting better. But anyway, okay. yeah, indeed. And the hotel occupancy rate has continued to recover. And 
ADR, average daily rate around the world, and I'm generalizing hugely, is now above 2019 levels. So people are paying more. And what we had is the recovery first started with leisure, the pent-up demand to go do something, to go someplace. And what's coming on next is groups, whether it's the small little group, business group, especially with the work from home phenomena, people are saying, let's not meet at the office, let's go do an offsite, or we need to, this pharmaceutical company, we haven't had an offsite on this new drug, we need to go bring people in from around the world. So group business is very, very strong in those hotels. And lastly is the business transient. As the pent-up demand to go see people in person to do business meetings, especially for sales forces, don't underestimate it. And they're usually the highest paying, too, within a hotel. Right. So we're seeing very, that's kind of layering on. And one reason why we continue to like the lodging industry, even with some recession fears looking out, we think it's a little different this time that you have this post-pandemic pent-up demand in those three aspects that will compensate for any economic slowdown, if there is any, in the next 12 to 18 months. It's fascinating, as you mentioned, the layering, because it's sort of, again, the question of what's sustainable. I mean, can, can this many people travel for leisure? The summer will end and so on. But as you say, all those other things pick up. That's yes. And then there's that terminology, which term you've probably heard of, just leisure. The mixing of business and leisure with the flexibility that remote work does offer many people. And we see that Sunday nights, by far, historically, were the hardest nights to fill any hotel. And you talk to many hotel operators, it's not up to the midweek getting full, but it's much better because people are extending their vacations or their weekends, I should say, into Sunday night. So we're seeing more business on that. In the past, you could discount a room anywhere in the world on a Sunday night and no one would show up. Now you're starting to see demand because of this transition, this remote work transition. That is so fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Okay, so we've talked a little bit around the world generally. It, have you made changes to some international areas? I'm, I'm talking sort of specifically about the economics of Europe at this point, yep. how that is affecting probably hotel and, and just many yeah. other real estate. I mean, one thing with the geopolitical, which is uh, unfortunately melding into economics and the energy crisis, which we feel here in North America, but is much more pronounced in Europe. And I actually personally was in Germany two weeks ago, where it's very much with a high dependence on Russian gas. And their economy is very exposed. And over the last couple of months, I have reduced my exposure to Germany, whether it's um, some German office that I owned um, and whether it's also some business parks slash logistics facilities I've owned and even some residential. So that I often don't make huge, if you've heard me in the past, geography bets. I have an underweight in Hong Kong for ge geopolitical concerns and the impact in the economy there, but also now in Germany because of the impact of the unfortunate Ukrainian situation. Hmm, that's interesting. So any other um, changes, if you can just sort of run over your positioning, which, as you say, hasn't changed a lot. But for those that maybe didn't tune in last time, just, just sort of go through sort of broadly the sectors and, and, and the regions. Yeah, I mean, I am very much still like the residential market, as we just talked about, the ability to push rents higher based on the demand and supply element and the undersupply aspect. And given that construction costs, whether it's the commodity or the right. supply element and the labor, 
So to replicate the building, you actually need to have higher rents to economically justify new competitive supply and markets. And then you have the, the time it takes to do it. So I very much like the residential market, although there is one fear and it's you know very pronounced and people on the um, eastern side of Canada are well, well aware of it is, and sometimes you benefit it, but sometimes people don't benefit it, is what I call the rent control element. Mm-hmm. That is the inability to actually mark rents to where the market would allow them to because of government type controls. And there is increasingly, whether it's at federal levels, whether it's Providence state levels, or even city levels around the world, because of such high increases, that is a fear. And you won't, you may not even capture what the market can bear or what inflation is. So those are two of the little bit of the negative cloud that I do, I'm very cognizant of. And that's rental and that's that's the REIT side of things and it's what you're interested in. It is residential. I mean, I just wonder if you can put some of the headlines that we read daily about dropping housing prices in Canada, also mm-hmm. the U.S., because of the mortgage situation. Is, is there any comment you can just provide? I know it's not the area that you're looking at. You're not going to buy single homes, but I'm just curious what you think of all that. Will it wrap up? Will it come to an end? Has it been sort of a shock and awe situation? It'll be over soon? Yeah, I mean, similar to what occurred in my the commentary we have in the commercial market, the residential market acts very similar. When you had this dislocation, that is interest rates and the economy, and then there's this pause in residential markets too. So transaction levels have gone down, the bid-ask spread has widened, and then you have people eventually, what else, they are forced buyers or sellers for sellers, it could be death, divorce, or or they need to move. So they become a forced seller and that will set a new price level or a forced buyer. For example, a, a new family or they moved, so they need a place to buy. So then these things eventually connect and then you have new price levels. But I do think there's an underlying demand for housing in many markets around the world. And so I do believe, this is my personal opinion, that I do think there will be, depending on how much it it went up, that it won't go down as much as it went up the last couple of years. In the hot markets, whether it's Sydney, Australia, whether it's, you know, Vancouver, Toronto, Denver, Colorado, those markets are seeing softening, but I don't think it's going to give it all back. Wow. Okay. Interesting. It's interesting because, of course, it's it's what everyone uh, loves to talk about. Um. Anything to discuss on, on the ESG front? I, I don't. I feel like this ball hasn't started rolling properly in what I've read about sort of buildings and what buildings need to have in order for them to be attractive to people in terms of ESG. Has that begun properly? It, it has the E factor on ESG. You have seen that um, being demanded or required by tenants, and in, uh, these things usually start in Europe, and we see it most pronounced there. And whether it's an office lease, an industrial lease, or some kind of commercial lease that they're expecting or demanding and a little bit willing to pay for a green building. You see it less so obviously on an individual basis, someone renting an apartment or even a hotel room. And the future maybe will get there, but it'll be very interesting whether people are willing to pay a higher price for Mm -hmm. something that is certified green going forward. Um, it is starting to slowly come here within North America and around the world, which I expect it will. And with higher energy prices that we've seen globally, in many, many instances, it economically makes sense to do these energy saving projects. 
And Do you then, like that passive housing stuff? So interesting. I mean, I don't really know whether it makes sense or not, but you watch that, you know what I mean? Where it's almost like they're insulated houses that kind of wrap them up and. Yeah, I think you're seeing that. And, and then many, many countries are have tax inducements to help people say, hey, it has to be green. Or you're seeing from the top once again that, hey, by this date for us to make, meet our ESG targets for the Paris Treaty that we need. And commercial real estate, unfortunately, is a huge emitter of CO2 that we need to do something and say that these buildings need to become greener over a period of time. So the tenants are demanded, government demanded, and many landlords, and we see them in the public space because they're larger. They have the ability to do it. They just don't own one building. So you do see them at the forefront. I wanted to ask your thoughts on on the consumer, uh, sort of vis-a-vis looking at everything from warehousing inventories, mm-hmm. storage even. How does the consumer sort of hold up at this stage from from the way you would be looking at the consumer? Yeah, what we see, and this is also talking to many of my, my people here at Fidelity, the consumer, except the lower end the consumer, is still doing okay. Obviously, energy prices, mortgage prices, rental prices have all gone up, so it leaves a little less money in the pocket. But many of the middle class to upper middle class have, have money saved from the pandemic. And we're seeing then on the retail side, it's a very interesting phenomena store openings, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in North America, they're still okay. The tenant really wants to increase the unit size because there was a deferral or a delay during the pandemic. And if their sales are flattening, remember, they need more unit growth to compensate for that. And not to say that that can't be problems down the road, because I always joke there's a cycle in, in retailers. They have same store growth, then they have unit growth, and then they have some bankruptcy. So we're now in the unit growth aspect of it, which is actually beneficiary at this moment for retail landlords. On the logistics and industrial side, e-commerce sales are flattening out. They couldn't keep up at the same um, toward pace that we saw with the pandemic demand. That's not to say they're declining the amount of total sales. On the logistics side, and well publicized, Amazon came in and said, you know what, we, we have a few too many distribution facilities and we're going to slow down that pace. But you know what, there's also another story behind it, which is supply chain and also where are we going to, people instead of just-in-time inventory, just-in-case inventory, which is right. then stored in a logistics facility. So we still see pretty good demand worldwide for logistics facilities. So fascinating because, I, you know, there's there's lots of discussion, as you know, between moving from from the goods to the services, which we've seen, obviously, and you've discussed lots of lots of ways that you capitalize on that through real estate. But I, I was wondering how that affects sort of the goods story. The goods story, but remember, it's not just goods for retailers, it's goods for manufacturing or in the system that many people that I can't manufacture this widget because this screw is somewhere in China. Oh, I need to store instead of one screw that I'm going to use today, I need to store 10 screws. I have enough. And yes, screws aren't a great example here, but it needs to be then stored in a warehouse someplace. But A large widget of some sort. A large screw. So, Steve, do you see a trend where commercial real estate is is converting partially or even fully to residential condo type dwellings? Yeah, I do think that's the future. But then you also have to look at the economics that 
real estate has a wonderful ability to convert itself to uses that make sense as long as someone makes money in the process of doing it. That is, you have the ability to pay for an old office building. You can do the time and the money to convert it to residential and then still make a profit. And that HBU or higher and better use is ongoing since the beginning of time. And I think it will go on, but then it needs to have the price of this stranded asset, this office building has to be low enough. And the price of the residential you could eventually sell it or rent it for has to be high enough that someone can make money in it. And so you will see some of that, but it'll be slower than you would imagine. So, I mean, this conversion of office, maybe other commercial as well, but I mean, are we talking decades or years here? Oh, decades, definitely. I mean, look at old, in many old uh, towns of whether it's Boston here where I live or Toronto or Montreal, old warehouses have been converted into offices, but that took decades and hundreds of years. So it was, it's been repurposed for higher and better use. So it will occur, but someone has to make money in doing it too. And someone made money converting it to those, you know, those offices that people wanted over the past decade for the technology firms. Right, right, of course. Steve, are there any concerns with uh, defaults given higher short-term interest rates? Is lending still fairly liquid? Yeah, that's a great question because we talk about the fundamentals a lot here and the fundamentals still, what we see in talking to a lot of companies, at least looking forward six months, is okay to pretty good when we talk to companies in the listed real estate sector. Obviously, next year, whatever happens in the economy will depend. The capital side of the business where we did see the biggest disruption and real estate is a capital intensive industry, that's where the cost of capital did go up. Now it's actually starting to go down with long-term interest rates slightly going down, credit spreads normalizing. This could be you know, an opportunity. I mean, I go back to the global financial crisis, which was a capital event that disrupted commercial real estate greatly. Here we had a minor earlier this year cost of capital change, and is it now at the margin going the other way a little bit? Right. Interesting. And that is an opportunity. So I don't want to say um, the statistics don't bear it out that global property stocks are, are you know, highly interest rate sensitive, but they do have a capital side. And if capital starts to flow freely again, that will be beneficial. That is fascinating. So interesting to speak with you. Thank you. We always get a, a true sort of look at the world through some of your thoughts. Steve Fuller, thanks for joining us. Enjoy the rest of your summer. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.